Looking forward today to getting back to the story of um, the Apostle Paul and his dramatic um, life change that we see on the road to, road to Damascus, which we're going to look at today. And Saul's story, his incredible life change story, unfortunately begins with incredible tragedy. You might remember when we were together uh, a couple weeks ago, um, we finished off our message with the stoning of Stephen. And this is where I want to pick up to kind of build continuity with today. Because the first time we meet Saul of Tarsus, he's stoning Stephen. He's an innocent man, executed by people. Get understand this, but when <laughs> this is just tragic, how they would execute people through stoning is to literally throw rocks at them at all different sizes, trying to get the biggest shot on the individual as possible in order to knock him out. And then once he's knocked out, they continue to throw the rocks upon the people until they have no life left into them. It is the most horrific way to probably watch an execution uh, and just troubling how it must have shooken everyone to their core, but yet they were still able to do that. I can't imagine standing anywhere near that without my stomach just wrenching in pain and anguish and never being able to shake the the memory of innocent lives, the innocent life of Stephen bleeding. But it says in Acts chapter 8 that Saul was one of the witnesses. He was an overseer, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Saul approved it. He applauded it. He encouraged it. In chapter 7, we know that that he was the leader of this because people laid their coats down at at Saul of Tarsus' feet, signifying that he was someone to have authority over this execution. Imagine the horror of this innocent man, stoned and bleeding to death. You can't live long enough to shake the vision of what that must have felt like and looked like and been like to live it. Stephen, devout follower of Jesus Christ, was martyred. And as a result, the church scatters. It says in verse 1, As it continues here in Acts chapter 8, a great wave of persecution against Christians began that day, sweeping over the church in in Jerusalem. And all the believers, this is, think about this, everyone that's following Christ, except for the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. This is what God's word tells us that Saul was doing. But we know it wasn't just Saul's plan, it was Satan's plan. Satan all along, his goal was to scatter the church and it appeared that his plan was working. What he would want them to do is get the church to run scared, to dilute the effort, to send them back into hiding. And Satan's instrument of choice would be Saul of Tarsus to carry out his plan. And it would appear that Satan's plan was working. But notice what happens next in verse 4 of chapter 8, the book of Acts. But the believers who were scattered, well, they didn't go into hiding. Notice what they did. God's word says they didn't go into hiding. They preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Yes, they were scattered, but they didn't stop preaching the message of Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 8 tells us there was great joy in that city. God's word was was growing and multiplying. And Satan wanted to kill Stephen to slow the growth of the church, but inadvertently, 
His plans to have Stephen martyred actually caused the church to grow. You may have heard the phrase before, and this is where I believe this phrase gets its birth, is that the, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. This is what took place. Stephen was killed, and the church began to grow. Now, why did Saul hate the teachings of the followers of Jesus so much? Because Paul seemed to be really angry. Saul, Saul, Paul, you can use those names interchangeably. Paul had really two names, Saul and Paul, depending on who the crowd he was referring to is how he referred to himself. Later, we would know him as Paul exclusively. But why did he hate the teachings of Jesus so much? Well, I think it's simply this, is that Jesus was offering a way that you can come to a relationship and salvation with Jesus Christ through a through an act of love and grace that God gives to you versus a religious rule following that you had to follow a certain level of, of law and rules uh, not, uh, that would entitle you to have a relationship with God and entitle you to have salvation. And Jesus was teaching that it wasn't a religious rule-based religion. It wasn't from works. It wasn't from good deeds. It was only a free gift from God. That's why they called it the the way. It was the new way. There was something new. There was something unique about what would happen here. And Saul, as a Pharisee, though, remember, he had spent his entire life on a works-based philosophy of religion. And so his entire life was about how I follow the rules, practicing it daily, following every religious rule flawlessly, he would tell us. He worked hard to achieve um, this prideful standard. And, and salvation in Saul's eyes was only for the few and for the elite and for the perfect Jews that would follow the law accordingly. Saul had this mindset that you had to follow the rules. And suddenly there was something in, in the mix. Jesus, who was teaching a different way, They called it the way. In fact, Jesus says it's the only way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, he would say. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's it's completely messing with his theology. It's completely messing with his mind. It's completely going against everything he's worked his life for. It takes away every reason that he would be, the reason to be prideful if this was true. Because Paul had figured all this out. Saul was the guy who, who had mastered the religious law. How is it possible for this to go the other way? So he was persecuting the church, but it was time for Satan now to turn up the heat against Christians because he scattered the church. That worked, but the church still began to grow. And so Satan needed to ratchet up the plan in order to thwart the efforts of these believers. And so Satan's instrument of choice again, who was it? None other than Saul of Tarsus again. Someone who's on the inside of the religious world. Someone with strongly held religious beliefs, but was willing to do radical things. Someone with power and influence. And someone who'd already had the taste for martyr's blood. And Satan was successful in boiling the heart of righteous indignation in the heart of Saul. So much so that Paul made it his personal responsibility to try to wipe out and stop and stamp out this movement. In fact, what Paul did, again, Saul and Paul, I'm going to use them interchangeably all morning long, so just get used to it. What Saul would do is he would go to the high priest and get permission and funding to persecute the church. Going directly against, you might remember, his, his professor, Gamaliel would say that we just need to leave this alone. If it's from God, you're going to be fighting against God. 
But if it's from man, it'll dwindle out. But, but Saul is like, no, 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 I'm going I'm to make this my own personal issue. So in Acts chapter 9, it tells us that Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so he went to the high priest, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way, which is also Christianity. It wasn't called that yet. That he would arrest any followers of the way that he would find there in Damascus. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So make no mistake about this. This was a well-funded plan that Saul had. He went to the high priest. He got permission. He got letters. He got money. And no doubt he would have been given some bounty hunters because this was not an individual effort. If he was going to take prisoners, if he was going to bring men, women, and children back into Jerusalem in chains, he could not do that in his own strength. He would need to have a highly organized effort of bounty hunters that would go along with him. These were paid thugs ready to carry out the dirty work. Well, Damascus would be about, in ancient times, they estimated to be 150 to 220 miles away from where Paul was. And so that was either a seven or an 11-day journey, depending on how many days they could travel. I'm sure he didn't travel by foot. I'm sure they had horses or donkeys or something that they were traveling on. I don't know their method. But this was a long journey. And as they were traveling, there would be two roads that they would be taking to Damascus, and both of those roads would lead Saul to a place called Capernaum, which would be the hometown or the home base of where Jesus did much of his ministry, where Jesus would do his teaching. And no doubt that Saul of Tarsus would have passed through Capernaum. And as to his religious personality and his religious practices, he probably would have gone into the temple, the very place that Jesus would proclaim this new way. And he would probably boil with righteous indignation to think about the message that spread from this very place, from that very person. Think about it just for a moment. Uh, I was watching online this week of of the temple site that uh, is believed to be the place in Capernaum where Jesus would teach. It's such a small place. Uh, The temple uh, is smaller than this room, but yet this is where that message began that has now infiltrated the entire world. We think somehow that it has to be a mega church that sends a message, but man, Jesus and the power of of, of his message with the the men and his disciples around him, the gospel spread in an amazing way. Saul truly believed that he could end this Christian movement, and he was on his way to Damascus, and along the way, something insane happened. Something transformative happened. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, that he was approaching Damascus on this mission. And a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and Saul fell to the ground. Just like we all see, whenever there's an encounter with, with God, there seems to be this posture change. And Saul fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, persecuting you? Who, who are you? Who is this? Verse 5 says, and the voice replied, I am Jesus. Oh, man, can you imagine? The one you are persecuting. I'm sure there was a dramatic pause in heaven just to allow Saul an opportunity to process what he just heard. Saul must have been crushed under the weight of all the emotion that was happening, awestruck and terrified at the same time. And then this voice, Jesus' voice would say to him, now I want you to get up, Saul. 
I want you to go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And the men with Saul, they stood speechless for they all heard the sound of someone's voice, but they didn't see anybody. And Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see because he was blind. So his companions, they led him by hand to Damascus. And he remained there blind for three days. And God's word says that he did not eat or drink. You know why he couldn't eat or drink? Because he was a complete and total wreck. I believe that Saul's heart was broken. I believe his heart was confused. I believe that he must have thought, how is this, how is this possible that I got this wrong, that I missed all this? How is it possible? I thought I was doing the right thing. Paul was under this weight of grief of what he'd done. And he's thinking, all those poor people, all those people that, I, that I've hurt and tortured and killed, what, what, have I, what have I done? He's standing there before God and he realizes it's Jesus, the one he's persecuted. He's gotten this all wrong. He's been following religious rule following for his entire life and began to champion an effort that his behavior was driving what he believed. He thought he was doing the right thing. As terrible and as graphic as it was, he thought he was doing the right thing. I don't care who you are. He could not shake the vision and the memory of those people that he's harmed. I was watching a documentary this week of a prisoner who they were interviewing who had long been convicted, serving a life sentence, and he had now professed to be a believer. And they were asking him, about the crimes that he committed, and he began to weep and cry. Although he believes that God has forgiven him now, and he's come to understand what it means to have forgiveness of sins, he yet cannot shake the burden and the pain of the lives that he, take, he took away. I know Paul must have had many sleepless nights. I'm sure he felt like he would deserve to die for what he's done. But he's like, no one followed the law more perfectly than me. I, I, I don't understand it. I pursued the law without fault. How, how can this be the case? So while Paul is dealing with that over a three-day period of time, not eating, not sleeping, not drinking, I'm sure, the story shifts to another scene. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. We pause that scene and shift over to Damascus, where we meet a new character, and his name is Ananias. There was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision. He says, Ananias. And he says, yes, Lord. And this is what God said to Ananias. It's very bizarre. He says, I've been trying to reach you. Your car warranty is about to expire. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Thank you for that token clap. I, I do appreciate that. <laughs> you can't get Did we all get the call, everybody? What is up with that? If you're broken down, I do not feel sorry for you on the road. You had every opportunity to fix that. <laughs> but the Lord spoke to Ananias in a vision, and he says, Yes, Lord, and here's what God told Ananias. I want you to go over to the straight street, to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, because he is praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming to him. And laying his hands on him so that he can see again. And Ananias is like, but, uh, hey, Lord, 
Um, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. He's like, are we sure we got the right name? And he, verse 14, and Saul is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. You're sending me into a really dangerous situation. Are you sure I'm hearing you correctly? Verse 15, the Lord says, yes, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument. Remember, for this point in time, Satan has used Paul as his chosen instrument. But now God says, he's my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And verse 16 is a very telling verse. And I will show him, Saul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God says, I've chosen Saul now. He is my instrument. I designed him for this job. He is hardwired to do what I need him to do. Right now, he's just going the wrong direction. But I'm getting ready to change all of that. And that's exactly what God would do. Is he would change the heart of Saul and then change the direction of Saul. And as we would know him as the Apostle Paul, we would see that he certainly did suffer a great amount of pain for his belief and faith at the hands of some people that no doubt were his friends in the previous life of his job. Let me ask you a question. Do you know somebody like uh, Saul? Somebody who's a, a brilliant, headstrong person who's just going the wrong direction? When you look at them, you're thinking, man, if they would just use that energy and that talent and that passion and that drive and that personality for the Lord, they would turn this world upside down. Maybe that describes you. Maybe you are going the wrong direction. Just imagine if you were to say yes to God and redirect your life. Because God says that Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles. You see, God has a purpose and a plan for each one of our lives. He wants you to be his chosen instrument. He has a plan for you that he would say, you're my chosen instrument for this particular thing in your life. Don't let just living a safe life keep you from carrying out the plan that God would have you to do. Oh, he has great plans for you. Yes, you may suffer like Paul did. Paul suffered greatly. And in fact, we would learn in 2 Corinthians, Paul would say that he bears the marks on his back and body that show the death of Jesus Christ. He had scars that would prove every day that he faced the death because of what Jesus because his faith in Jesus Christ. I'm sure he saw this as reaping and sowing about all the things that he's done wrong. He probably understood that I'm going to have to suffer now because of what I've done. So what did Ananias do? He says, go find Saul. This is what he does. So Ananias, verse 17, went and found Saul, and he laid hands on Saul. And he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly, something like scales fell off of Saul's eyes, and, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized. And afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength, and Paul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, changing his entire tune, saying that he is indeed the Son of God. He is the way. He is the only way. You see, Saul had to make a choice, and so do you. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have to decide, is this, is this just happening to you personally, or is God doing something in you for a public use? 
Because Paul could have just said, wow, I have salvation through Jesus Christ. And he could have just used that for his own personal benefit and his own small circle of influence. But Paul recognized that he had a public responsibility. He was an instrument chosen by God to carry this message to the Gentiles and to the Jews. It was an incredible responsibility that he had. But when he would say yes to that responsibility, you have to think for a second. He would be, he would be going against, basically going AWOL with all the religious leaders that he had, he had just gone to the high priest. He just gotten funding. He, had, he has a band of thugs with him. This is a highly organized effort. And Paul's like, yeah, I'm not going to fall through on any of that. Imagine the pressure that would have been on him. He had to let go of what he, he knew and what he had learned and what he had had to take hold of what God was giving him in his new life. Paul changed dramatically. He was once the persecutor, but now he became the preacher. And everyone that would heard him were amazed, but they were afraid of him still. They would say in verse 21 of Acts chapter 9, isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? And didn't he come here to arrest them and to take them in chains to the leading priest? Everyone was suspicious, and rightfully so. They're all scared of him. But Saul's preaching became more powerful and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus couldn't refuse his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He basically was laying down the apologetics argument about there was no body, there was this, and all those things. They were like, hey, folks, he's resurrected. This is actually real. This actually happened, and I'm a believer. You would think everyone would just be so excited and start to join the, 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 the bandwagon of everything that Saul was about. But it says in verse 23, after a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. And they were watching for him day and night at the city gates so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. And so during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. I don't know why they had these giant baskets laying around in biblical times to lower people. I got to get a basket just in case, you know. But the hunter was now the hunted. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid and they didn't believe that he had truly become a believer. So Barnabas had to step up and say, no, 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 guys, 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 listen, he's the real deal. What we're seeing take place in him is, is really the case. Perhaps the biggest evidence is, look, he's not persecuting us anymore. He's joined us. And it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says the church finally had peace and was growing like crazy. It's my paraphrase. But meanwhile, in other news, the church was still growing all around. It was growing in, a, in the town of Syria in a little place called Antioch. And I want you to notice something really cool, and I'm going to begin to kind of land the plane here with this message. Just go back with me just a second. This is something really, really powerfully cool. Saul was persecuting the church and executes a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen, his death, the blood of that martyr became the seed of the church. The church began to scatter in all different places. And one of those places in which the gospel began to be scattered to, where they continued to preach, would be a town called Antioch. Antioch would, be a, would begin a church there. 
And Antioch, the church in Antioch, would begin to grow and flourish there. It was a matter of fact, during in, during in Antioch, what took place is that the, the believers in Antioch were first called Christians in Antioch. But even more cool than that is that in Antioch, follow me, just pay attention here, in Antioch, it would be the place that would actually send Paul on his first missionary journey. Think about this. I mean, you can't write this stuff. Paul is trying to, Saul is trying to stamp out the church. He inadvertently calls a, uh, the church to grow in a church that would one day send him on a missionary journey. Isn't that cool? You think God has this stuff under control? God dramatically changed Paul. Paul would later write these words to us now that we've got a context of his life. He would say in Philippians chapter 3, he would say, I was circumcised on the, when I was eight years old. He was describing his religious prowess, so to speak, of all of his former ways as, an ex, as a persecutor of the church. He would say, I was circumcised when I was eight, year, eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, and I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, <laughs> I obeyed the law without fault. See all the pride that he was saying there? But listen how he contrasted in verse 7. I once thought all these things were valuable, but now <laughs> I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, you see, everything else is worthless when it compares to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as all garbage so that I can gain Christ and become one with him. Paul says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I have become righteous through faith in Christ Jesus. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. Do you see the dramatic contrast? What a treasure that Paul gives us as he writes this Philippians passage. When you study who he was, you understand that he was working on righteous indignation. He was working from a belief system that said, I need to protect this religious rule following I need to protect this, these, these, these traditions and these ways of, of how we would come to God. And he totally missed the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And as soon as he got that right, he began to fix it mentally first. It changed his heart and it changed his direction. And he realized that everything that he held dear and built his life upon was now spent and worthless to him in compared to knowing Jesus Christ. And then he draws this huge exclamation point to say it is not about religious rule following. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. It is possible still today for us to think that we can do all the right things and try to please God in all the right ways in order to somehow give a bargain to him that says, hey, if I live a good life on this earth or I follow certain religious rules and I, I practice a religion, if I feel like I'm doing the right things, I can totally miss the, the free gift that God is trying to give to you and I. 
it's easy for us to think that because those things feel good, they feel right, they feel religious. But God, he doesn't want them as a way to come to faith. He doesn't want your good works as a way to get to faith. He wants you to come to faith through through understanding his love and his grace for you. Because if you get that, you'll be just like Paul. You'll have a change of heart, which will result in a change of direction for your life. And you will want to do good works that you were created for, that you were purposed for, that you were fashioned for. God desires us as believers to be actively involved in the purposeful work that he's placed upon us. We're not here to be saved and then to sit. We're here to be saved and then to serve. We're here to save and then proclaim Jesus Christ. It's not a consumer religion. But you can get everything. It's just so simply, it's so easy to blur. You think that we can do the work in order to be saved. We can't. But we get saved and then we want to do the work. Are you following that? I think that you understand. But if you're here today and you have never experienced that, I want to offer this to you. Because Paul was clearly going the wrong direction. And he was fighting against God. But God saved him and changed him, not because he was a good person, only because of God's love and his grace. I started off the message, this, this, uh, this Sunday morning service with you today by reading Ephesians. And I want to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. That God, this is what Paul would again say to us. This is the one who we're reading about that would write these words to you and I. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so no one can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he's planned for us long ago. Paul's testimony to us is an invitation to life change today. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've not placed your faith and trust in him, receiving his love and his grace, not because of anything that you've done. Listen, I promise you, there's no one in this room who has done the heinous things that Saul has done. And if Saul can say, it's not because of anything I've done that God saved me, then you can say the same thing today. You can say yes to Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this morning to bow your heads. Everyone in the room, if you would just bow your heads. No one looking around, just close your eyes, please, for for the benefit of everyone in the room. And I'm not going to embarrass you. But if you're here today and you want to know what it means to have a relationship with God, if you're here today and you realize that you have gone the wrong way in your life, that you're, you would consider yourself a, a person that is not worthy for God to save, but yet inside your heart there's something about this message that you go, is it possible that God would change my life and save me? Yes, it is possible. If you're here today and you don't have a confident hope that Jesus is your Savior, if you're, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that if you were to die today, whether you would wake up in heaven or in hell, then I want to encourage you to say yes to Jesus today. If that describes you, what I want to do, and I'm not going to embarrass you in any way, shape, or form, but if you're here today and you want to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior or just want to know more information about what that means, I want you to raise your hand. 
No one's looking around, just me. If that describes you today and you feel like that God is moving inside you and you need to know more about how to follow Jesus Christ, I want you to raise your hand. Don't be afraid to do that. If God is prompting you, amen, I see your hand back there. Thank you. Amen, I see your hand. Thank you, ma'am. Praise God. I want to pray for you if you've raised your hand. Father, those individuals here today that want to put their faith and trust in you, I pray, God, that they would learn that first they just need to surrender their life to you. That surrender is simply just laying down their life to you to say, Father, if you'll take me, I want to give my life to you. I want to trust you. They would ask you to be their forgiver and their leader. That they would put their faith and trust that you are God's son and that you are truly the only way. And it's not anything they can do in their own strength and their own works in order to accomplish that. Oh God, please. Let them cry out to you in a prayer of surrendering their life to you right now. And may you hear their prayer. And may they hear you call them a child of God, one of your children who you've saved today. If you made that decision today, you can look up, everyone look up at me. If you've made that decision today, I'm excited for you. The church family is excited for you as well. And I want to ask you to do one more thing if you're comfortable, but if you're not comfortable, it's fine. But I have a packet of information that I want to give you today. In just a moment, the elders of our church, many of them will be down across the front of the service as we sing our final song. And we have a packet of information for you. It's a new believer's Bible and some discipleship tools to help you know how to take your next steps with Jesus Christ. And I want to give you this for free, and I want this to be in your hand. If you're watching online, you can simply text the word surrender to 97000, and we'll, we'll reach out to you to make sure that you get these. But if you're here today, in our final song today, I want to encourage you, as we all stand and sing, that if you would just come forward, if you're comfortable, come forward and talk to one of my elders here and their family. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to take you right outside that door to our prayer patio, and we want to help you understand all the resources that you have. It'll take five minutes to do it. Five minutes, if you've got that time, we want to get this information in your hand. We want you to know what it's like and what, what the decision you're making. If you have any questions, we want to navigate that with you. We want to make sure that you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and how you can take some really great steps today to begin working on your relationship with him. 